A boat ride on the Sea of Galilee can be quite an adventure. I say that not just because of the gospel reading that we heard earlier, but from personal experience. Over the last 10 years, David May and I have pretty much every other year led a trip to the Holy Land, and one of the highlights of the trip is a boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. Actually, I should say it's potentially a highlight. It can be cheesy, or maybe hokey is a better word. I used to tell my students at the seminary that there's a fine line sometimes between the holy and the hokey. The boat ride on the Sea of Galilee, well, the boat reminds me of the kind you might see at a theme park or Lake of the Ozarks. And you have to buy your ticket inside of a gift shop, kind of the way Disney exits you through a gift shop when you've done a ride. And when you're on the boat, the crew will almost always ask, and what is your country of origin so that they can hoist your flag and play your national anthem, which is really hokey. I mean, nobody goes to Israel to ride on the Sea of Galilee where Jesus ministered to hear the star-spangled banner. And then near the end of the ride, the captain brings out some little jewelry for sale and souvenir t-shirts. And one time, when we were on the Sea of Galilee, on the boat, I was reading this story from the Gospels when a ski boat came by and the skier cut so that one of those rooster tail waves came rushing at us. You go on the Sea of Galilee for something holy, and it can turn hokey. This gospel story that we read occurs in variations and different versions six times scattered across all four gospels. And every one of those stories is holy. And the interpretations that surface so often, they're hokey. They can be. For instance, there's this one that says, oh, walking on water, that's a kind of metaphor for personal success, rising above one's circumstances, like you would see on an inspirational poster in the break room at work right next to the OSHA guidelines, and it would have an eagle, and it says, if you want to get out or fly, soar like the eagles, you have to get out of the nest, or in this case, if you want to walk on water, you have to get out of the boat. But you see where that got Peter, right? I mean, he almost drowned. It turns out the Bible's not really interested in in increasing our sales. And Jesus wasn't a motivational speaker. You know, if you'll order my DVD set, you too can learn how to walk on water. No. There's another hokey interpretation, probably even more common, and it kind of has twofold avenues of it. I've always called them the debunkers and the defenders. When it comes to miracle stories, the debunkers, of course, say, hey, look, It's just physics. You can't walk on water. I told you the Bible's make-believe. And the defenders, well, they don't come off looking much better. They, They say things like, I don't know how, but if the Bible says Jesus walked on water, he walked on water. My God can walk on water. But, okay, what's the point, though? What difference does it make? Maybe if we were sailors, but... I've never needed God to walk on water in my life. It turns out that miracle stories are not so much about the miracle itself, but the story that gets told through the miracle. 
And in this case, Matthew gives us two clues as to how to interpret it. The first one is he talks about storms. We call it the Sea of Galilee, but if you've been, you know it's a landlocked lake. But even as a lake surrounded by hills and mountains, storms can come up and they can be quite powerful. I grew up on the Gulf Coast of Texas, sailing in Galveston on Clear Lake out into the Gulf. And I remember just after graduating high school, I took this girl on a sailing date. We rented one of those little sunfish sailboats, went out into Clear Lake right across the highway from NASA. It was a beautiful day. There were some big clouds and a nice breeze, but no storms. And then, of course, it happened. Big storms all of a sudden roll in, and being on a sunfish is not a good idea. But thankfully, there was this huge sailboat moored, and they saw us, and they motioned over, and we tied the boat on, and we went down below deck with them and visited with this couple until the storm passed. Refuge from the storm. But the other clue Matthew gives us is what the storm does. It batters against the boat. And the boat, by the time Matthew writes, has become a symbol for the church. We even still have nautical language associated with church architecture. This space that you usually would be sitting in is called the nave. We get words navy and navel from it. It's the idea of the hull of the ship. It's turned upside down so that we could have refuge in here. This is where we are in the ship. But here's where it gets tricky and complicated, is trying to figure out a holy move from this ancient text to our day. How do we apply it to our day? The language that Matthew uses is that the waves battered against the boat, and the wind was against them. That word battered, that little Greek word was actually used to describe foreign armies that would batter down a gate as they took over a city. And by the time Matthew writes, the Romans have sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. But that's not where we live. The boat we call church here in the States isn't facing that. There are Christians around the world who are, but but not here. We, we're doing just fine. We don't have those kind of storms. I think for us, the key is Matthew's four times use of fear. He uses that word fear or references to it four times. So then the question is, what is the church afraid of today? And I don't just mean how if we gather together, we might get the virus. No, I mean long-term. What, what are the fears? What fears do you have for this congregation, for the church? There are some people who've predicted that like small businesses and some restaurants, there will be churches that go under, that go out of business. And there's evidence that will be the case. Even pre-COVID, some 10 years ago, I read about how in Montreal there were 50 cathedrals for sale. That could happen. Or others worry that the church has lost its cultural clout. 
It used to speak and everybody listened. Everybody paid attention to the church and, oh my gosh, nobody cares anymore. Will Willimon, Methodist bishop, tells a story about how even in the 60s when he was in high school, he and his buddies snuck out of church to go to the movies. And he half-jokingly said, and that was the beginning of the end. But think about it. You're watching this on a screen. You, you, could, you could stream millions of other choices for entertainment. The church is not the only show in town. And so some people are afraid. And there are so many other fears that people have about the future of the church. And that's where we need to, to hear the good news that Jesus speaks. He says, take heart. If you're afraid, take heart. And he says, be not afraid. And even when he says to Peter, you're a person of little faith. Well, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, just a little faith enough to move mountains. You don't have to be afraid. But honestly, the more I've thought about it, these fears seem too small to me. They seem like we're more interested in self-preservation, keeping this thing alive just for the sake of itself instead of thinking about its mission. Peter gets out of the boat, tries to walk on water, and it doesn't work. And maybe that's a way of signaling that this is where we're supposed to be in the church as a part of this. And, of course, Matthew earlier tells a story of Jesus calming a storm, but he was with them in the boat, and now he's not. And maybe that signals a time when Jesus won't be with us in the flesh, and yet still we should not be afraid. But I really think the key to this text is that little phrase at the very beginning, the other side. It's the destination of their boat ride. Jesus made them get in the boat to go to the other side. What, what are boats for? The other side is kind of like we would say the wrong side of the tracks. The other side in Jesus' day was where Gentiles lived. He is going where they've been considered unclean. And what he does when he gets there is the same thing he's been doing among the Jews. He heals people, and he feeds people. What one scholar calls the essential Jesus. He heals, and he feeds. <laughs> it's really interesting. There are six versions of the boat story on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus calming the storm. Sometimes in the boat, sometimes he comes walking. And they're scattered across all four Gospels. That is extremely rare, except, except for the case of the miracle story of Jesus feeding the multitude. Six versions scattered across all four Gospels. That, that makes these stories of boats and bread rise in prominence. And it turns out, they're connected just before they get in this boat. He feeds people. And when they get to the other side, he heals and then he feeds thousands. This is what God calls us to. Now, boats are for lots of things. I mean, the church, we have worship. 
and education and socializing and all kinds of other things. But God help the church if we ever become so inwardly focused that we forget where we're going to the other side. I think I may have told you this story how 10 years ago I was on sabbatical in Atlanta. I was working on a book and I was teaching one class at the School of Theology there at Emory University. And on Sundays, I eventually landed at a Lutheran church where there was this really gifted preacher and where I could get communion every Sunday. But before I landed there, I went to different churches every week. Do you know there are a lot of different kinds of boats out there? (laughs) I mean, a lot of different kinds of boats. I'll never forget this one I went to. It was a big boat, lots of people there. And the preacher read one of those six stories about Jesus feeding the multitudes. This is the one about the little boy who gives his lunch so that it can be used. And after the reading, the sermon pretty much went downhill from there. He talked about how when he was a little boy, he took his lunch to school in a paper sack. And he told all kinds of stories about himself. And the people seemed to be really smitten with him, but I, I just wasn't that taken. So I pretty much checked out, waited for us to get back to shore. And then, and then near the end, he said something. He said, now I want you to look under your seat because under every seat, there's an empty paper sack. And I leaned down to get mine and I thought, what hokey thing does he have up his sleeve now? And then he said, over the next few weeks, we're going to fill these bags with food. And we're going to feed thousands of women and children, single moms, hungry people throughout this city. And I hope you'll go with us. And I thought, wow. Or maybe a better one-word response would be, holy. Where is this boat going anyway? 